one of those words that if you say it too loudly, you destroy it. Like if somebody asks you, are you dead? If somebody answers yes, it's not, allowed, it's not possible. Peace can be elusive. And for so many reasons. And there are many kinds of peace, aren't there? There's relational. There's a relational kind of peace. There can be national peace. There can be peace just in your heart and in your mind, or the lack thereof, and that is usually our greater concern, right? What is peace? How easily is it lost? Peace was challenged for me this morning in a small way. I had planned to get up at a certain time to prepare a handout for you, and somehow I missed my alarm, and I lost a whole hour. There went your handout. That caused me some anxiety this morning. I had to remember, God gives peace. So the solution to that will be, if you've got paper and pen, and you want to take notes, you might want to find that now, but I will offer this to you later today. I will send out via email, um, I will send out a completed outline of today's message. So if you want to just sit and listen and process and look and not take notes, that's up to you. If you want, is that something that you desire, you can print that out later. Um, Otherwise, if it helps you stay awake while I rattle on, then you might want to get your scrap paper and take some notes. So we are continuing our study in Leviticus, and here we are looking at laws leading to grace. We have already been introduced to the idea that God established this law with his people in order to make very clear what kind of God he is, holy and righteous, loving, good, and what it is required for people to have a right relationship with him. And he has made it clear that he desires a relationship with people. And so you know, we have a little you know, phrase kind of in the corporate world today, right, where people like to say, clear is kind. You've heard that? So giving somebody, clear is kind, giving somebody precise instructions, being very forthright in saying, this is what I expect of you, and this will be the consequence if you don't do what I expect of you, that it's viewed as, you know, we're accepting that as, you know, that's not just being bossy, that's being clear, and being clear is being kind, because then you know what is expected of you. You know what are the consequences of not fulfilling your responsibilities. So in that way, clear is kind. And in a sense, that's what the, what the Old Testament law represents in God's character is the kindness of clarity. He's making it very clear that he is absolutely holy beyond comprehension, absolutely righteous, absolutely good at all times and in every way. And we as human beings, subject to the curse of sin, are not. And so there's a conflict. There's a, there's a break in relationship. There are barriers between us and God. Like if you've ever done those, those experiments back in school where, where you tried to mix oil and vinegar. They just won't mix, will they? They just push apart from each other. Just, they cannot blend. And so holy God and unrighteousness cannot come together. Something has to be done. There has to be an agent. There has to be uh, something done to change the mix of things there to make it possible. And so God has laid out in his law in the Old Testament his standards, his expectations, and he began to make clear what it would take for people to have a right relationship with him. And we have seen that the sacrificial system is God demonstrating the fact that sin is so serious that death is the consequence. And that yet, he who is seeding in people's understanding, he was demonstrating through this whole system the fact that he himself did not desire to destroy people but to have a relationship with them, to, to make reconciliation possible. And so he demonstrated through this whole system a way that there can be substitutionary atonement. Two big theological words, right? Well, you know what substitution is, one standing in for another. Atonement is a, is a covering that, that takes care of a problem. It's a covering, it's a, the natural association is with blood. Uh, a blood atonement is, it is a payment made to cover over the guilt to assuage God's wrath and let him maintain his righteous position of judging sin with death. 
And so the sacrificial system became very clearly God's way of achieving that. And yet it was not, it was not a once-for-all solution. We've seen that people have had to continually offer up these offerings, and, and that is part of the tragedy of sin. And yet through this, God was making a point and driving the point home so that when his ultimate solution came on the scene, everyone should recognize it for him, for what he was, and be appreciative for that and accept that with gratefulness. So we've seen that God is demonstrating, demonstrating through the sacrificial offerings how the people could approach God. So if you will advance the, the slide, we're looking, we've seen already in the very beginning of Leviticus um, in chapter 1, we saw this brief introduction, just verses 1 and 2. It just launches in very quickly into showing us God speaking to Moses in the new tabernacle and giving instructions to the people and the priests of Israel. That's what he said he's going to do. Because Leviticus, if you recall, is kind of a little pause in the flow and the sequence, the historical sequence of what we saw from Genesis and Exodus and continues in Numbers. Leviticus is just kind of this, this where we're sitting there. The, the tabernacle has just been finished. It's all constructed now, according to God's specifications. Moses saw it done exactly. And now God is rolling out the rest of the law and all the particulars of how the people are to use this tabernacle and access or approach God appropriately. And so this is what the book is all about. So we've seen, then he launches right into the description of the five sacrificial offerings of the law. That was verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 3, um, and the whole section goes through uh, chapters 6 and beyond. And then we have the first part is referring to what the people need to do, and then the second part following uh, chapter 6 is, or part way into chapter 6 is, is what the, the priests are supposed to do. And so we talk about the five um, sacrificial types of sacrifices. And then we come around and talk about the same five again. The first is the focus of what the people should do. Later is the focus of exactly how the priests were to perform it. But what we're doing is we're kind of taking the two sections that relate to one offering and look at it together. So we'll, we will eventually, it will be like we've surged ahead in the book because we will have already dealt with some of the later chapter material. So first we looked at the burnt offering. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 1 and also in part of chapter 6 where we saw the people's part and the priest's part. And we noticed as we looked at the burnt offering that sacrifice is required to be acceptable to God. The first part of that, the, the burnt offering itself was to be continuous in the tabernacle where, where animals from the herd and from the flock were brought and they were sacrificed up on wood on the big bronze altar. And if you can recall back to when we went through the whole construction of all the furniture of the tabernacle, the big bronze altar with the big horns on it that sat out in the middle of the courtyard. It was the first thing people came to when they, when they came through the entrance to the tabernacle. And it even it was so large, there's a ramp that went up to it that the priests would walk up onto this thing and so on. So it was here that the burnt offering was to be offered up all through the night even, just continuous. And it became the foundational sacrifice demonstrating the requirement to address sin and for people to be able to approach God at all. It, it, it demonstrated the symbolic transference uh, that indicates substitution. And all that means is that when the person brought an animal to be offered up as a burnt offering, we saw that they were, they were instructed to put their hand on the head of this animal while they killed it. So they were demonstrating through this tragic action, this heartbreaking thing, that there was a transference of guilt. This animal was their substitute. It was dying in their place. It was taking what they deserve before God. And so that was a poignant uh, symbol of the importance of the substitutionary sacrifice. We saw through that that atonement is achieved only by substitutionary death and that God is the one who must be satisfied. Secondly, the last time we looked at the grain offering, and that was in chapter 2 and, and part of chapter 6 as well. And we saw that it was an expression of thanksgiving, and it was an acknowledgment of God as the provider. And, and it was also a God-ordained provision for the priests as well, as the, as the grain was to be offered up a handful. A portion of what was brought was put on, on the altar, that there were stipulations, no honey, no yeast, and so on. And then the rest was given over to the priests to provide for them in their service as well. 
Now we come to the peace offering. Look at the peace offering in chapter 3. You can meet me there if you haven't already gone there. Leviticus chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and then we will be uh, popping over to chapter 7, starting in verse 11. The peace offering, we're going to see here that there are, um, there are certain varieties. First of all, we have uh, the animals that can be included are cattle, sheep, and goats, and they can be male or female. I believe we have that on the slide, do we not? We can see that as we come to chapter 3, verses 1, 6, and 12. And we're going to read the passage in just a moment. I'm pointing this out in advance. And then you'll see that there are three types. There are kind of three subdivisions of, or purposes maybe, for the peace offering. And that is, number one, thanksgiving, which is just thanking God for blessing or for help in times of trouble. Or the second one was a, a vow offering that was fulfilling a promise to God. Maybe somebody, you know, offered up a foxhole prayer, as we you know, might refer to it today. You know, oh, Lord, if you'll help me through this, then, you know, I will offer sacrifices to you, and I will, or I'll do this. And so the, well, the vow offering was another type of peace offering, fulfilling a promise to God. And then there was the free will offering, which is just absolutely voluntary, just an act of worship and fellowship, just a response of gratefulness and love and worship to the good God who makes it possible for us to have a relationship with him. So we'll notice those things as we come together, and then we'll look at some of the particulars. We'll break it down after some observations after we have read it. So if you will follow along with me in your own copy of Scripture, there, I have a lot of Scripture today, so most of it I did not put on slides. Later on I have some parts, but right now I invite you to look in your own copy. And if by any chance you are not terribly familiar with, whether you're um, watching at home or listen to this later, if you're not familiar with how to find things or not very quick at finding things in the, in the Bible, don't be embarrassed. Just find somebody around you who does know how to do that. Ask them to help you or let them share their copy with you or something like that. And look around and see if there's someone who could use your help. Offer the help. Let's just get it done. So we are going to Leviticus chapter 3, first with verses 1 through 17. And God is speaking to Moses to, to deliver this message to the people. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, Male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. So it needed to be a perfect animal. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. And if he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering uh, to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar of food offering to the Lord. Are you getting ready for lunch already? Now, if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the, and the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. He shall offer from it as it's, as it's offering his, uh, for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Now we go to chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. 
And here we see the more specific details that were related especially to how the priests were to carry out their part of the responsibility of the peace offering. Some of that obviously was already rather explicit, but here's a bit more. And this is the law, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11, 7, 11. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, now we're talking, before we were talking about the different types of animals, right? It said first if it's from the herd, if it's, if it's sheep, if it's goats. Now we're talking about the different purposes for the peace offering, right? So it says if he's offering for thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. And with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offerings with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering, or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers a sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. What remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Uh, popping over to verse 28, because the verses in between we're going to deal with separately at another time. Verse 28, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. And he shall bring the fat with the breast that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offering. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken, these are God's speaking first person, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. All right, well, let's make a few um, summary observations here about these things so we can gather our thoughts. There's a lot, there's a lot there. So we, we've seen already the types of animals that can be used, right? It can be from the herd, so cattle. It can be sheep. It can be goats. They can be male or female, which was not allowed in the burnt offering before, if you recall. It could only be a male. Now we have... Um, some of the other particulars, but first I want to reflect on the, the types, because we talked about a thanksgiving for blessing or help and trouble, for the vow, fulfilling a promise to God, and free will, voluntary act of worship and fellowship. And I think it's just good to see these kind of applied, I guess, in, in ways in other contexts. And so um, these are referred to um, in other parts of Scripture in, in the Old Testament. And so if you look at Psalm 116 with me, put, keep your finger here in Leviticus 3, and um, or you should be able to go back to recent if you're on a tablet or something. Um, psalm 116, verses 16 through 19, the psalmist refers to a couple of these offerings, the peace offering. Psalm 116, 16 through 19. But, o Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer you, offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the court of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. 
Now, I know we have um, in, well, in my generation, some of you, it's uh, already too old, but, but many of you will, <laughs> will remember, um, you know, the chorus that came out, very happy, very, you know, joyful, and, and, and I'm not knocking it because I've used it many times and it has encouraged my own heart many times. But, um, but it's usually like, we bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, right? And if you've got good drummers and things like that, everybody really enjoys themselves. Yeah. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house. And I offer up to you a sacrifice, uh, the sacrifices of thanksgiving. Right. Okay. So we've taken it to be, you know, in our time and in our application, the sacrifice of thanksgiving being the sacrifice of saying thanks. Well, that's not wrong because we are told in the New Testament that we are to worship God with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks from our hearts to the Lord. And so that is perfectly appropriate. But when you see that here in the Old Testament context, it doesn't mean just an offering of saying, you know, people didn't come to the temple and just say, thank you, God, and walk away. This sacrifice of thanksgiving was an animal to be sacrificed where they had to put their hand on the head, where they had to kill this animal, where the blood was drained, thrown against the altar, the fat was removed, burned on the altar. And so, so a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving really was kind of, it cost something. It meant something more, to be honest, because it wasn't so easily done. So here we have the sacrifice of thanksgiving that is being offered up to the Lord and vows being paid to the Lord because the Lord had delivered this person from their troubles. Uh, Psalm 56, if you look there, we see another reference, especially to the vow offering as one of the peace offerings. Psalm 56, verses 12 and 13. Psalm 56, verse 12 and 13. The psalmist says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So here again, it's a it's a, a peace offering that is that is uh, it's a paying a vow and an offering thanks because of God's deliverance, even deliverance from death, this person's life. It was a meaningful offering for people. Uh, also, if you would just look briefly in chapter 50, uh, chapter fifty of Psalms, Psalm fifty rather, Psalm fifty verses fourteen and fifteen. Here we have kind of a, a call to worship through the peace offering, through the thanksgiving. Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the, to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God is encouraging this relationship. You know, Turn to me for help. I will give you help. And don't forget to say thank you. You know, that's not wrong for God to do, is it? perfectly right. Now, as a parent, most of us have already learned, others may be still learning the importance of being explicit, again, kind is, uh, clear as kind, being explicit with your children, and you're not being selfish when you're teaching them, when I hand you something, you need to say, thank you, mommy, right? That you're not building yourself up, saying, I need to hear this from my child. I need to hear thank you. No, you're teaching them for their benefit, right? And you might hold on to that thing. You're not going to release it until you get that thank you, right? Because you're teaching them the importance of saying thank you. It's an important life lesson for them to get on well the rest of their life and for them to have the relationships they should have with people. And so here we have God being so loving, so kind that he is this clear and saying, you need to offer up Thanksgiving sacrifices. You need to fulfill vows to me. You need to say thank you. You need to praise me. You need to call upon me for help, and I will help you. These are all very clear fatherly instructions. They're loving. So different from the, from the imagined gods and, and religious systems uh, of just about every other system, where the expectation is that people will do things to, to appease the god, to to maybe do enough that they might decide that they like you. And it's always take, take, take from the false god and to the harm of the people rather than in a loving way 
teaching them to have a right relationship with them. So here we have the loving instruction of a heavenly father. So let's look at some of these particulars. First of all, the requirements. The requirements of this um, peace offering, first of all, it was the same procedures as the burnt offering, the things that we saw there, all of those things about the hand on the head, the killing, the removal of the fat, the splashing of the blood against the, the altar, and all of those things, those are essentially those procedures done the same way. You see the blood, number two, splashed on the sides of the bronze altar. The blood God declared previously belongs to God and is not to be consumed by the people because life is in the blood, and he wanted the people to understand the, the connection and the important relationship of the sacredness of blood and the, therefore the understanding of the value of the atonement of blood. And now we see the fat portions, it's stressed, the fat portions are burnt on top of the burnt offering, and so they are burnt on the altar on top of this perpetual burnt offering that we learned about before. So you have the wood on the big altar, you have the burnt offering constantly being offered up, and now you have the peace offering, and it is those, those fat portions are put on top of the other continually burning burnt offering and offered up to the Lord. And the Thanksgiving offering in particular, we noticed, was coupled with grain offerings and bread. Now, I distinguish between those two things because we learned in the grain offering that none of them were to involve any leaven whatsoever, right? But here we have, for a proper Thanksgiving offering, they didn't just bring the animal, they also brought four kinds of grain product with them. The first three are the same that we saw in the grain offering before, the different forms of, of you know, the finely ground flour with oil and cakes with oil and, and fried in a pan with oil and so on. These are all the same things. But then it goes on to say as well in verse 13 of chapter 7 in particular, that they were to bring with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring offering with loaves of leavened bread. Well, in this case, the bread offerings are treated a bit differently than before. They were shared before with the with the priests, and no leaven was a handful was taken, as I said, put on the altar, and so on, but no honey could be put on the altar and no leaven. Well, in this case, what is offered up is a loaf or a biscuit or a cake or whatever, a portion of each one of these four kinds was to be given to the priests just as a provision for them, and the rest could be consumed by the offerer and their own family, as long as they're ceremonially clean. And, and it seems that these things are to be kind of enjoyed together in this situation. So the, per, so the person brought in this, this grain offering and the animal, the fat portions are burned up, all these things are done, and they give, the as we'll see here, the, the whole breast of the animal was offered up as a wave offering. So it was basically a acknowledging before God. It was just taken by the priest and, and held up before God, and that was referred to as a wave offering. It wasn't burnt up. It was waved and then prop, just properly cooked and eaten by Aaron. And so that was, that was to be delivered or shared amongst the whole priesthood. When it says Aaron and his sons, remember that it was particularly Aaron and his um, male descendancy that were to be the priests, whereas all the rest of the tribe of Levites were the assistants to the priests. So this was given as a particular provision for the priests. It could be shared amongst them all. And then you had these cakes and the right thigh of the animal were given particularly to the priests who helped, who, who officiated, who helped with that offering. It was a specific uh, provision for that individual. And then these things apparently were enjoyed together as a fellowship offering. And we see reference to that elsewhere in Scripture as well. And I didn't chase all those up, but we have the fellowship offering, uh, fellowship meals that started all the way back here where people would come and they would eat the rest of the animal they would eat the rest of the, of the grain offering things and leavened bread together, and it was a time of fellowship. God didn't just want people to offer up things to establish peace with him, but he wanted them to have peace with each other. So here are the, the uh, restrictions, briefly, the restrictions. They, number one, must eat no fatty parts or blood. Those belong specifically to God. The fat was kind of, you know, kind of the choice bits. And the, and the idea was that because this is a fellowship meal, this is a peace offering, this is God's part. 
Now, God didn't care particularly to chew the fat, I don't think. That wasn't the point of it. It was to say, God gets the best parts. We're offering it up to him. In fact, we can see that um, God doesn't actually, uh, contrary to many other um, religious systems' understanding of things, uh, this was not something that God needed or desired for his own provision. But if you look, if you were to look in, and apparently I didn't print it out here uh, either, but if you look at Psalm 50, where we just were before, Psalm 50, verses 12 and 13, we see God saying that, do I really want fat? Do I really want animals? In other words, he, he doesn't want it for himself so much for him to consume as it is important for them to offer it up. You're following that, similar to the teaching somebody to say thank you. He wanted them to offer up the best parts him, acknowledging him, not that he needed it, not that he enjoyed it. Secondly, we see the thanksgiving flesh as opposed to the grain part, but the flesh part of the offering must be eaten on the same day. But if it was a vow or a free will offering, then that flesh was to be eaten within two days. But they're absolutely not to go to a third day. And fourthly, the fat and the priest's portion were to be waived before God, as I've said. Those are the restrictions, particular. The recipients, I've addressed this, but let's summarize once again. Uh, one each of the four grain and, and leavened bread loaves to the officiating priest, the breast to the male members of the Aaronic priesthood, the right thigh to the officiating priest, and all the rest of the meat and grain and bread was to be shared between the offerer and anyone who was clean, anyone they invited who was ceremonially clean and qualified. Their family, typically, perhaps maybe they'd sit down there and have a picnic with the priests and enjoy that time of fellowship together, because it is elsewhere referred to as a fellowship offering. And so the significance of this in particular is establishing and preserving. Oh, there, you know, we'll catch up here a little bit, the other points. Go ahead and rattle through those. Let people see those things. I went faster than you're expecting. Huh? Now the significance is establishing, preserving, or celebrating fellowship with God. All of this. For God to teach his people something about the way to have a relationship with him. Kind of the good part, the, the, the particularly nice part of the relationship with God. He's indicating that he wants a warm relationship. But even that has to be done on his terms because of the distinction between holy and righteous God and unholy, unrighteous people. When we come to the New Testament, we have seen before... Uh, as, as we compare the, the Old Testament particular sacrifices, we saw first uh, with the burnt offering that the answer to that in the New Testament is Jesus, God's perfect lamb. Next slide, if you please. We were reminded how even uh, the, John the Baptist you know, declared when Jesus first came on the scene, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he made it very clear that Jesus was that final and ultimate fulfillment of the lamb sacrifice, that he was called the Lamb of God. As we looked at the grain offering, we're reminded that, that in Scripture, Jesus even called himself the bread of heaven, the one who offers life and sustains life for people. And now we see, in response to or answer to the peace offering of the Old Testament sacrificial system, we see that Jesus Christ is indeed the Prince of Peace. We're approaching Christmas. I love Christmas. I love Christmas music. And the music that I love the very, very, very most is Handel's Messiah. Now, I won't ask, I don't want to embarrass anybody because you should be embarrassed if you have not actually ever seen an entire performance of or listened to an entire performance of Handel's Messiah. But if you're in that position, you need to get that done. Right? You need to get to a performance of Handel's Messiah, best done live, but if nothing else, you can find video performance, you know, performances of it in, in great halls around the world and, and things like that. But the beautiful thing about Handel's Messiah is that the entire libretto, the, the entire text of the thing is taken directly from Scripture. It is nothing but scriptural quote. If done in its entirety, which is rarely ever done, it's a full three hours long. 
and the entire thing is directly taking Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, laying them all out, these key prophecies of the Messiah, and then demonstrating their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It is an amazing sermon set to music. And I rejoice. And some of the, you know, Scripture verses that are so important to us, as soon as I hear, you know, start reading a little bit of it, boom, the music comes to my head. <laughs> it's accompanied by music, you know. Now, I know I'm a little bit weird, but I'm one of those people who, like, has to have a soundtrack to life, you know. When I'm walking around doing what seem to be normal things, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe what's going on up here, you know. You know, if I feel like, okay, I'm going to make my mark in this situation, this is a case where I need to be bold, I need to be, you know, whatever, then, then the Darth Vader motif is going through my head. Dun, 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 right? Many other things will trigger something, and I'll see something, and boom, there comes, there comes a song. There's, you know, it's just constantly going on. I see Anna can relate to that. She's yeah, got that way. Uh, Emily's bobbing. Yeah, Gilbert's that way, too. I know some of us are cursed with this. The blessing and a curse, you know. Uh, so there's always the soundtrack going on. And, and when I see these verses, I, I look at, at Isaiah 9 6, and I think I put this up here. Uh, here we have, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. In my head, of course, that's, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon. And it goes on and on. All right. And then we sing, Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And it's always accented, okay? <laughs> which seems contradictory, like, like I said at the beginning. The Prince of Peace. <laughs> but we want to be sure that we don't forget how important his role is. He is indeed the Prince of Peace. So, right away, I, I realize these are important prophecies of Jesus Christ, and while we, we can sing them and almost forget the significance of each part of that, there's a reason that in this key prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament, he is given this label. Yes, he's identified as mighty God. That's important, right? That tells us that the Messiah was going to be deity not just a good something, not just another prophet or something like that, but Messiah's deity, mighty God. Right there, the Old Testament prophecy, clear as day. That he is the everlasting Father. So there again, if it wasn't clear from the first part, okay, so he is one with the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's absolute unity there. And he's the prince. And that is the best news for us. That when Jesus came, it was possible for there to be a real, true, and lasting establishment of a relationship between sinful people and righteous, holy God that can be described as a relationship of peace. That is a beautiful thing. And we see that being declared in Luke chapter 2. As the angels brightened that night sky on that night to those, those shepherds who were out on the hill by Bethlehem, and we love to sing, Hark the herald angels sing, or angels from the realms of glory. All of these songs about this moment where the angels declared, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus' coming was to establish peace. It was a gift of peace from God to humanity. So the Prince of Peace is the answer. Let's just look at a few other thoughts here, some things to think about, consider, in reflection on all of this. First of all, the peace offering of the Old Testament sacrificial system demonstrated God's desire and his intent to make a way for people to experience peace. 
more than one kind of peace, peace in relationship with him, but it even goes beyond that. Look in John chapter 14, verse 27, and I have this on a slide here. John 14, 27, and also 16, 33. We can look at them both together. Jesus said his own words, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. For a person who has that right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Jesus declared himself, I am the one who can give you a peace that is an unworldly peace, that is as unlike anything else that this world can offer. My peace, he says. My peace I give to you. That is profound. Maybe you've never paused and thought about it. I know I haven't thought about it long enough. But what does that mean for Jesus, Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to say, my peace I give to you? There's so much that challenges peace in our lives and in our world. Jesus has offers, offered us something priceless, his peace. His peace doesn't, doesn't guarantee absence of conflict. It doesn't remove all cause for worry. The causes are there. The conflicts are real. We're not denying anything like that. His own disciples to whom he, he spoke these words, still many of them had to run for their lives. Some of the, they were ultimately arrested. Most of them were executed for continuing to declare Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God. Okay. So my peace I give to you doesn't mean you're not going to have any trouble. It means that even as Jesus went peacefully through the trials that he faced, when he came as the Messiah and he delivered himself up to be that ultimate and final sacrifice, he went through that with an undergirding inner peace, knowing that he was doing what the Father had called upon him to do and knowing what he was going to accomplish through that sacrifice. So as he demonstrated his power and his ability to avoid the conflict and the Garden of Gethsemane and those soldiers approached him with their torches and their spears and their clubs and their swords, and Jesus said, you know, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. <laughs> they all fell on the back. These mighty soldiers, all in a pile. He waits patiently for them to get back up and try to regain their dignity. Says, now who again were you looking for? And this time he simply yielded himself up and said, leave these people alone. I'm the one you're looking for. And he went peacefully with them, knowing all that was going to be done to him in the hours to follow. That's a profound, undergirding peace that Jesus could go through that with purpose. He could have avoided it. He chose it so that he could make this possible, that we can have this relationship with the Father, that we can experience his peace, because otherwise we stand on the outside deserving of God's wrath. That's the kind of peace that Jesus is willing to impart to his children. His peace he will give to you. The peace offering also demonstrated the necessity for the substitutionary sacrifice, as I said before, to establish a right relationship between sinful people and a loving but holy God. And we see this in the book of Acts. Peter kind of expounds upon this and talks about how this sacrifice has made uh, things possible, relationships possible that wouldn't otherwise be possible. He, this is in the context where he has gone to see Cornelius. If you recall, he was a Gentile centurion who, who, who sought for, for God. And this was a brand new thing because the, you know, the gospel message had been brought specifically to the Jewish people first. And now Peter was called to go talk to this Gentile to whom God had, had given a, a vision. Excuse me. And so he went, and this was, and this was just earth-shaking for Peter and for all who knew him, all of his associates, that 
these Gentile people were to be included in God's grace. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, this is Acts 10, uh, this should be there, yes. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, referring to the sacrifice of Christ, the death of Christ, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not only to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here you have very clear this message of peace that it is entirely through and strictly through Jesus Christ. He went through all that sacrifice, all that willingly to make this possible, that you could receive forgiveness of sins in his name. That you can experience peace. Father, as it says back in verse 36, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So we see that God demonstrated through this offering the necessity of the substitutionary substitutionary sacrifice to establish a right relationship, to have peace with God, and it was through Jesus Christ. He was that ultimate sacrifice. Romans 5, 1 and 2 affirms this. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are justified, declared, just as if we'd never sinned, not guilty anymore, And we have peace with God, strictly through Jesus Christ. And through Him, we have attained access, just as I prayed before. What a a great privilege it is for us to be able to approach the throne of grace boldly as His children. We have access to the Father now through Jesus Christ. And we have this third thing, hope. We rejoice in hope and the glory of God, because someday we're going to see it. Someday where it's all going to be realized. We, we will we'll be no longer carrying around these sin-cursed bodies of death in a sin-cursed world. One day it's all going to be made truly right in our experience, not just, not just in our spiritual status, but in our experience. We will see the glory of God. I look forward to that. It also demonstrated this sacrifice that... It demonstrated God's desire for his people to enjoy fellowship both with himself and with each other. This this fellowship meal that ensued, uh, that came upon the heels of the peace uh, offerings, that was shared with priests and and with the offerers and their family and so on, is, is a demonstration of God's desire for people to fellowship with one another as well as with him, or in fellowship with one another in his presence because the portion was given of the meal to God, offered up the fat portions. The portion was given to the priests, and the rest was for the offerer. And so in a sense, the three of them were sitting together, these three uh, parties were sitting together to enjoy this meal of fellowship together. Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 18, Paul says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Talking particularly about that, that division, as we we're talking about with Cornelius, the division between Gentile and Jewish person and, and the reconciliation of these people in Christ. 
15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making what? Peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Jesus established through his sacrifice, through his work, the ability for these estranged parties from the past, Jewish and Gentile, to become brothers and sisters in Christ. That may not sound like such a big deal to you, but if you grew up in first century Israel, as either a Jewish person or a Gentile, you would understand how dramatic that was. And finally, this peace offering shows us the true personal peace is possible when peace with God is established. Think about this. True personal peace is possible when peace with God is established. This is, this is the big secret that so many people are missing out on. Everybody wants peace. Relatively few experience it. People just hope and wish and grasp for some way to experience peace in their lives. And they know that inside what they're really feeling constantly is turmoil, anxiety, angst, anger, sadness, fear, guilt. Want to know the secret? Peace with God is the foundation to all other kinds of peace in a person. If you're not right with your creator, nothing else is going to really be right. Some things might look good on the surface, but you know better what's inside, what's below the surface. Philippians, this is the last passage I'm sharing with you this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Now, this is, this is instruction to believers. This is what you can enjoy when you have that peace established with God. This is kind of a way that you exercise that. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And... The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the exercise of personal peace as a result of having the peace relationship established through Christ with God. Now he says this is how you can, you can exercise this. This is something that belongs to you, but maybe you haven't really taken possession of it. Maybe you haven't really begun to enjoy it like you're supposed to. This is how you do it. No matter what your circumstances, choose to rejoice in the Lord. Be reasonable with everyone. Remembering that God is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. What well, rather, your response to anxiety-causing circumstances is, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When you do this, when you obey in this way, when you exercise these things, the peace of God, this is the peace that comes from God, like Jesus, my peace I give to you. The peace of God, which is something that others just cannot understand, it surpasses understanding, it is illogical. How can a person experience peace in circumstances like this? Well, it's because of the peace of God. It surpasses human understanding. That peace will guard your heart and your mind doesn't necessarily say it's going to guard your body. It's not going to necessarily guard your finances. But it will guard your heart and your mind. He will sustain you through the difficult things. He will give you that inner peace, that strong, foundational peace that gets you through the difficult things. Now, maybe you're someone here or out there or who listens to this message later maybe doesn't know the peace of God. 
Maybe you have observed, however, in the life of someone else who identifies clearly as a Christian. Maybe you have been a little antagonistic to them. Maybe you thought they were weird, whatever. But maybe you can recall seeing them go through some really difficult circumstances, and it confused you the way they responded. That Christian who who lost someone that they loved so dearly in a tragic accident or, or to illness, where you know you would just be devastated and you wouldn't know how to get up the next day, you can see that they felt all the pain, that they grieved very sincerely, and yet somehow they got through that or are getting through that in a way that is different, something that you don't understand. That's the peace of God. You can have it, but there's only one way. And he goes on to say, verse 8, finally, brothers, this is still exercising the peace of God, take, taking the right steps to enjoy the peace of God in your life. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So you have some choices to make to experience the peace of God really in your life. Choose what you dwell on. You're instructed by Scripture, to dwell on the good things. Don't dwell on the bad things. Don't dwell on the evil things. Don't dwell on the ugly things. Dwell on the good things. And if you obey, here again is a promise, just like before. You respond to problems through prayer and supplication and thanksgiving and praise to God, that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now here, if you will choose to focus on the good things and not the bad things, then he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, here's the promise, and the God of peace will be with you. Now that's an interesting little turnaround. The first time he said, the peace of God will guard you. Now he says, the God of peace the person himself, will be with you. You will have fellowship with the God of peace. These are tremendous promises. Wonderful things that God extends to us. He, he, he laid out the foundation, or the basis for it all in the peace offering in the Old Testament time in that sacrificial system. And now we are so privileged to see the fulfillment of all those things in Jesus Christ and to have extended to us this amazing opportunity to have peace with God, to have the peace of God, and to have the God of peace in our lives if we will simply respond to him appropriately. Your faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for the, the graciousness of revealing yourself through, through Scripture and, and, and through the, even the, the law of the Old Testament, which raised the standard so high and revealed our weakness and our failures and our inability to, to really meet your standards of perfection. And yet through that, you, you pointed us to your son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfiller of all these things. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for so willingly marching to the cross and enduring the pain and the shame and the agony of separation from the Father as you took his wrath upon you for our sake. We thank you for that, and we rejoice in your victory over, over death and hell through your resurrection, and we thank you that you have extended to us this ability to have this relationship with you. And I pray, Father, that you would impress upon the hearts and minds of, of anyone hearing this message today or any day after, if they have not accepted this gracious, costly gift that you have offered to them, this, this peace relationship with you, this inner peace that they can enjoy in their lives through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through faith in him. I pray, Father, that you would give them understanding today that you would give them faith to believe, that you would welcome them as, as your child, 
and that you would give them that peace that surpasses all understanding. For your children hearing today or whenever they hear this message, Father, I pray that you would that you would remind us of these truths of your word, that we have some responsibility to lean into you, that we have some responsibility to choose what we focus on and that we respond appropriately through prayer and, and with thanksgiving and, and with praise and rejoicing in the midst of all circumstances so that we can experience your peace and your presence. Instruct our hearts. Teach us, Lord that we might enjoy with you the relationship that you've made possible, that you have extended to us through your grace and love. And it's in Jesus' name alone we pray. Amen.